You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. And I'm Nordic's Head of Thought Leadership, Dr. Jerome Pagani. We recently sat down with Dr. Margaret Lozovatsky, Chief Health Informatics Officer for Novant Health. Dr. Lozovatsky shares her background as a pediatrician, how that led to her becoming a CHIO, and what she's learned from working on both sides of the EHR. We also discuss having a continuous improvement mindset after the EHR has been implemented, the dangers of being too clever with the EHR, and how to structure governance to drive best practices. Plus, we hear about some cutting-edge avocado technology. Let's plug in. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Lozovatsky. So you're the Chief Health Information Officer of a large multi-hospital healthcare system. Is it safe to assume you've always wanted to be the Chief Healthcare Information Officer, or is this something that you grew into? How'd you get to this magic place? Great question. Um, Like most informaticists, as you might guess, this was not on my radar as I was growing up and thinking about career options. Or even as I was going through my medical training, I um, finished medical school and did my residency in pediatrics. And during my time in residency, we were implementing electronic medical records. And because I have a computer science undergrad, which at the time I had no idea how I was going to use, people quickly realized that I was the go-to person because I knew how to talk to the IT folks and get their problems fixed, and I knew how to explain what the clinical need was. And so my interest in this field really started during that time, but I, of course, had no idea where it was going to go. And I got my first job at North Shore University Health System, which is uh, an organization that's known for their technology and at the time had a very forward-thinking CMIO. And I immediately reached out and said that I'm really interested in doing this work, to which uh, the response was, well, there's a lot to learn. (laughs) And he um, amazingly sort of took me under his wing and mentored me and helped me understand the complexities of electronic medical records, of all the clinical technologies that we use. And a couple years out of residency, I was asked to lead inpatient optimization and to lead an organization-wide documentation optimization project. So I very quickly learned about compliance and billing and all the different complexities that go into designing our technologies. We successfully launched that project across the system and were able to standardize documentation. And that really got me interested in thinking through how can we use technology to be an enabler for our clinicians rather than a hindrance as it's often seen. And that's where my career started. Um, I then took a role as an ambulatory uh, medical director. I am a pediatric hospitalist, so I've never practiced in the ambulatory setting, but it was a gap in my knowledge. And so it was a great opportunity for me to really understand the full workflow design development across a complicated health system. I've had several roles since then as I grew in my career doing similar work. And that is what brought me here to Novant. Um, I am now the CHIO, as you mentioned. I lead a multidisciplinary team of clinical informaticists. We have about 80 people total on the team. We have a large 
physician and APP builder program. And we have a wellness informatics team, inpatient ambulatory informatics, and we also have what I call reporting informatics. So folks that function as liaisons for the data analytics teams that are similar to all the clinical workflow. And this has been a really amazing opportunity to develop and design what informatics can do and to really take the lead in setting the strategy for clinical technology from a clinician's perspective. So what I've heard, and I wanna make sure Jerome uh, emphasizes this, is that uh, pediatricians with computer science backgrounds are brilliant and successful at their work in pretty much all aspects of life. So we're just gonna wanna write that down and, and make sure that Jerome gets all of that. I believe this is an example of selection bias, uh, so. I think he's right. I mean, I really appreciate that perspective. <laughs> I'm outnumbered, so. You are, and um, yeah, valor and yeah, all of that. Well, so one of the reasons that we, we wanted to talk to you is that uh, your CEO um, gave an interview where he said some gross things. That's a little pun, because um, he talked about a program, gross meaning uh, getting rid of stupid stuff. And, um, and, and that's, a, that's a key part of design, is to, is to not throw things into the, into the mix that don't belong there at all. My understanding is that you've, that's been a very successful program that you've led, and that you're, you've kind of shifted the name, or really was never called getting rid of stupid stuff in the beginning. So tell us about that, and you know, how did it start, and, and where are you now, and how do you judge how you're doing? That's a great, great question. So um, our CEO has always been very forward thinking in understanding the importance of making an efficient workflow for our clinicians so that they can focus on patient care. And the Gross program is one example of the work that was inspired by that leadership. And um, it was actually started before my time at Novon Health. Um, it was started by Dr. Jason Conley, who is our associate CMIO of Ambulatory and um, is on my team. And at the time, the thinking was that there's a lot of things that are in our technologies that do not make sense from a clinical perspective, which really goes back to um, what I was saying about the fact that it's very important for us to have clinicians in the conversations when we design our technologies because they truly understand how they're being used and they understand the clinical needs. And so we started this program with just opening up an email and a Teams chat and people started sending us ideas that of stupid quote unquote stuff. And uh, the team was very successful in getting rid of a lot of the things that were suggested. More than 50% of the suggestions were actually taken and completed. And what has happened with that program is we have evolved it to cover all aspects of our clinical technologies, and we now call it We Matter, and that stands for Workflow Efficiency in Epic, Making Thoughtful Reductions. And the reason that we renamed it is because we wanted to have a little bit more of a positive spin on it. The things that were put in the system often had a reason back when they were put in the system, and so we also want to be respectful of our colleagues that spent a lot of time developing those tools. Uh, a great example of that is during the height of the pandemic, we put a lot of alerts in the system that were really critical because we had reporting needs and some of those were urgent. And so we needed to ensure that we were collecting certain data. As we took a step back, 
we started reviewing some of the alerts that were in our system. And so as part of this We Matter program, the team has done a reassessment of the tools that existed and they have successfully saved almost 100,000 hours of clinician time within the last year and a half. And um, we calculate each alert as three to five seconds, which is the standard put forth by Epic. And we do think that that's about the time that it takes. And so that's how we have calculated the hours that have been saved. Uh, the team continues to do this work. We continue to calculate the amount of time that we're saving and we continue to take feedback from our clinicians across the system. So you say about 50% of the suggestions were accepted or acted upon, which by my calculations means 50% were not. Um, did you, how did you make that determination that it, it, you know, this was something that was essential and, uh, or important to, to do or collect or to have the doctor do? And then how did you get, I think the key part where a lot of people fall down is reporting back to the, the doctor or the clinician who said this is something that it's extraneous and explaining to them why, why it's actually important. Yeah, um, really good point. Uh, I always refer to that as the black hole that people talk about where their requests go. And so we are very intentional to not have that black hole exist. And we do have a feedback loop for all of the things that come through this program and all of our other requests. And I can talk a little bit about some of the governance structures we've put in place. But for this program specifically, the determinations were made with clinicians at the table. And so there were suggestions about things that are in the system that may have had regulatory reasons, that may have had quality impact. And so as we gave feedback to folks that requested it, we were very honest and upfront with them when we had situations we couldn't remove something. And then there were things that were education. And we find that a lot as people put in requests, it's because they may not be using the tools in a way that they were intended. And so sometimes it's education on the workflow designed and tools that they may be able to use to meet their needs that already exist. We actually find that about 50% of our requests overall tend to be education. And that's why it's so important to have clinical informatics at the table because they can immediately address it upfront before these requests go to the technical teams and before we spend a lot of time and energy building things that may not be necessary. Margaret, you mentioned that a lot of the things that you found weren't, it wasn't necessarily that they had not been very intentionally thought through, but they served a purpose at one point in time. And as things have evolved, they no longer served a purpose. So this um, reminds me of the, the, the principle that we talk about, uh, about needing to have a continuous improvement mindset. And, and it sounds like you're saying, you know, that's absolutely critical for making sure that even really well-intentioned things end up being uh, useful or retired. Yeah, and that is absolutely true, I think, in all aspects of what we do. It's important to have a culture where people understand that, because sometimes we create tools that are fantastic at the time that we design them, and five years later, there are clinical guidelines changes, there are workflow changes, there's updates in our technologies that no longer make those tools usable, and people are really tied to what they developed. <laughs> They believe that whatever was built, and this goes for both technology teams and our clinicians, we're all creatures of habit after all. Um, but it's really important as a team to understand that none of this is personal. And if we don't have a continuous improvement mindset, we're not going to evolve in 
our technology use or really in our ability to care for patients? Well, some things were well designed at the beginning and became less usable or functional near the end. Other times, maybe not so much. Um, maybe it, it wasn't great at the beginning or, or um, the folks that designed it didn't really understand what the workflows were going to be. And one of the things that we talk about is making sure you have the right experts. Who's the actual expert? Um, how do you deal with um, uh, clinicians? I don't want to say the word surgeons, but um, how do you deal with clinicians who kind of come in with uh, the idea of, hey, uh, I have a solution for a problem that I'd like you to implement instead of, hey, uh, I have a problem. I wonder how you might help. Craig, that never happens. Not at this organization, <laughs> not at Novant, but at other organizations, not any organizations you've ever been at, but other organizations where your friends have been at. I'm sure it's happened there. I mean, maybe in other places. Our clinicians are all super reasonable and come with great ideas. And we, uh, for the record, uh, believe everything you're saying. Um, th that's fair. Now answer the question for <laughs> other people. Um, you know, this, of course, happens all the time. People come to us with solutions and often vendors are very good at coming to clinicians and selling them a product and promising them that it's going to do all the things that the clinician needs. I usually try to take the conversation back to what is the problem we're trying to solve. And we find that often people pause because they already have in their mind what they think is the solution. And they haven't even thought about what the problem is. And so that's really the approach that we take from a, our clinical informatics team. First and foremost, it's important to have clinicians at the table that understand their area of practice. And I think that's critical, having decision-making be as close to clinical care as possible. I always say I'm a pediatrician, I'm not a cardiologist. And so I'm not going to tell cardiologists how to practice medicine. Yet what clinical informatics brings to the table is helping to guide the conversation. So when a cardiologist, and I'm picking on cardiology, but name any specialty, when a cardiologist comes to us and says, I have the solution that's going to solve my problems, we always take the approach of what problem are you trying to solve? What do we have today in our environment? that may already address your problem. What are options in our current technology suite that may address your problem? Because we all know finances are tight everywhere right now. This um, is something that every organization needs to consider. And we talk about prioritizing and we talk about what are the options out there. Sometimes what they're bringing to us is exactly the right solution. That does happen but we need to walk through all the appropriate evaluations to get to a place where we're implementing tools that truly, again, are gonna enable our clinicians and not gonna get in the way of their ability to care for patients. So you keep saying the word clinical informatics, and as far as I'm aware, isn't that just a doctor who likes to play computer games? Well, yeah, it's all of us, major geeks. Um, this is something that is a huge point of education. And it's a point of education for all of our colleagues that we continue to work on. And so when I talk about clinical informatics, I describe us as liaisons between the technology teams and the clinical teams. And I also like to highlight that it is now a board certified specialty. It is recognized as a medical subspecialty. So much like I would not go to a cardiologist for a fractured foot, <laughs> I may not go to a pediatrician to solve a technology problem, 
Now, does the pediatrician need to be at the table with informatics? Absolutely. But I think that partnership is really important. And this, again, takes us back to the discussion of who really should be driving the technology changes at the organization. It has to be a partnership between our technology colleagues who are experts in their field and clinical informatics who really understands the clinical needs and workflow and technology so that together they can drive the strategy and direction of where that technology goes. You mentioned the who. Why don't we touch a little bit on the how? So as you said, you get feedback from your clinicians regarding performance of the EHR, but in addition, you also analyze the best practice alerts in your system. So how do each of those work and you know, how do you integrate them or, or choose between which one to go with? Um, we do both. We have structured our governance in a way that really drives some of the best practices that we need to get to. And um, this actually took some time. This was an evolution over several years to get us to a place where we have a venue for our clinicians. And so what we developed, we lovingly call DLTs here at Novant Health. Um, Dimensions is our brand for clinical technology. So that includes our EHR and the 400 uh, systems that are interfaced with our EHR that people often don't think about. And so the DLT stands for Dimensions Leadership Triads, and we have one for all of our specialty areas. That includes physician leaders, nursing leaders, and informatics. And of course, in some areas, we bring in pharmacy and respiratory therapy and occupational therapy. You name the area, and we structure those teams to ensure that Again, decisions are made as close to the care as possible. And then we escalate those decisions if they cross specialties to our physician advisory council and our nursing and ancillary advisory council. And then we have a strategic council that is made up of clinical leaders across the system for some of the larger decisions. And so that's really where this goes. So you mentioned that having a continuous improvement mindset culture is really essential, but sometimes CHIOs run into a problem of having senior execs that think once a technology is implemented, it's done and they can move on to the next initiative. How do you deal with that and find ways to keep the technology working and keeping your clinicians happy? I find that getting to the goals we're trying to achieve helps with collaboration amongst all senior executives. If you think about the strategic direction of the organization, that really helps to bring the conversation back to that. And if we feel that, for example, we are going to endanger patients, we're not meeting our safety and quality goals, or we're not meeting our goals with retention and recruitment, then most uh, of our executives and any executives really understand that we need to shift some of the work that we're doing with the technologies that support that. And so to me, building this culture of con continuous improvement starts with understanding the goals and strategic direction of the organization and then bringing people together so that we can collaborate to get to those. So talking about clinical informatics and, and informaticians, um, you have said sometimes that uh, we can be uh, you know, too smart, too clever for ourselves. And I'd like to know what you meant and specifically 
I'd like you to explain how you destroyed the integrity of your previous employer's tech stack by trying to be too clever. We'd like details, names, dates, and locations, if you would. Um, to be fair, it was me trying to stop them from being too clever, but yes, um, that is a good story. Um, so the reason I say that sometimes we can be a little too clever in our design is that as clinical informaticians, we really try to ease the burden of our clinicians. And we usually really understand the workflow in great detail. And so sometimes we build tools that are meant to drive our users in a particular direction and we built all the details to get them there. What I often bring up is that unfortunately our patients don't follow textbooks. This is true when I take care of those patients and it's also true when I try to do things in the EHR. And when we become too restrictive, we actually create more problems for ourselves. And the example that you brought up was a situation where we had EHR design that really tried to predict and understand what reports each of our users needed to see. And so the views were limited based on your specialty and your role. And it really was meant to be helpful because we didn't want clinicians to see the information that's irrelevant to them. And with all the best intentions, what ended up happening is you would have a nurse sitting next to a pharmacist having different views trying to figure out why they can't see what they perceive to be much better for them. And what I had shared with our technology teams is, again, best intentions sometimes lead us to having challenges in the clinical spaces. And clinicians are smart people. They can figure out what data they need and what data is not relevant to them. And sometimes we may not predict the kind of patients they're seeing. For example, I have a situation where I was admitting a patient for ENT because that particular ENT didn't have privileges at our hospital and I didn't have access to any of their tools. And so the comment was made that if we open it up to everyone, we will destroy the integrity of the system. And while and, and that did happen, I believe, and the hospital went bankrupt because of you. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's usually what happens when I try to make changes. <laughs> All right, maybe, that, maybe I got the story slightly wrong. So the, the tech stack didn't fall down. And the hospital is still in business. It is still in business. And in fact, there were several people that hugged me in the hallways when we opened up all the tools for them because they were so happy. I, I, uh, I think I've told you that uh, I had a similar story when I worked for this uh, electronic health record vendor based in Verona, Wisconsin. And um, uh, for the speaking of pediatrics, uh, we had documentation templates that we were creating for the two-month checkup and the four-month checkup and the six-month checkup. And um, I, I, I did this. I um, wanted to be uh, helpful. And so if you were about four months old, if the patient was four months old, I hid the two-month uh, documentation templates and the six-month documentation templates because clearly... This was a four month old and that's all you needed. And um, apparently per your patients don't sometimes follow the rules, uh, five month olds would sometimes come and need a, either a four month check or a six month check. And uh, sometimes neither of those was apparent. And what from, a, from the user's standpoint, from the clinician standpoint, that is what we call a bug, right? Uh, it was for my last patient, it was right there and now it's not there anymore. And little did they know that was by design.
Um, and so I, I'm, I'm definitely a believer that we can be too smart for ourselves and we need to kind of tone it down sometimes because we have the tool and we want to use the tool and want to make it easy as we can. But sometimes uh, patients don't follow the rules or uh, ENTs don't follow the rules by not having uh, privileges at every hospital we want them to have privileges at. Yeah, and the reality is is that we understand the, the clinical challenges when we do this, but we, it's also important to talk about the maintenance of a system that has so many restrictions. It's just unwieldy over time, and then you continue to create more and more challenges. So you've mentioned that uh, sometimes when a tech leader tries to make decisions for or on behalf of clinicians, it doesn't work out great. Um, you've also mentioned that the opposite is true, that when a clinician tries to make tech decisions for themselves or for other colleagues, it doesn't, often it doesn't work out as, as well as it could. You kind of need that, that middle ground, and, and that's the sweet spot that clinical informatics can play. Yeah, I think clinical informatics it truly is the middle ground and the liaison between the clinicians and the technology folks. And it's a partnership. There are expertise that both sides have. Our clinicians are very good at taking care of patients. They don't necessarily focus on all of the background and complexities of the technology, particularly the infrastructure and the cybersecurity considerations and all of the things that go into creating a solution that is functional in our clinical environment. And likewise, our technology leaders are really good at understanding the complexity of those solutions. And they are not the experts in the clinical care, and that, nor should they be. So the partnership between the two, which really is that clinical informatics sweet spot, is critical for us to be successful so that we can truly create technology solutions that can be adopted, accepted by our clinicians and can actually be helping them care for our patients. So clinical informatics is not going to be taken over by chat GPT. That's what I'm hearing you say. I mean, who knows? <laughs> so you're not making a prediction at this point regarding chat GPT versus clinical informatics professionals. I want to I want to note that and uh, suggest that maybe your board certification will be stricken from the record. <laughs> I mean, pediatricians with a computer science degree are safe. The others, I don't know. Okay. Let's, uh, I, I think that we've hit that uh, very well and I want to make sure that um, we strike from the record me saying that you might be stricken from the record. Ooh. It's very confusing. Meta strike. So there was an article published recently that mentioned that your We Matter initiative reduced uh, clicks within the EHR by 26 million clicks. Besides ruining clinicians' practice time for playing Candy Crush, does this have an actual impact on their lives? Oh, gosh. Um, so since that article has been published, we have actually gathered um, data that is um, up to date today. And we are at 67 million since the beginning of 2022. And so I'm very proud of the success that the team has had. And yes, our clinicians do have more time to play Candy Crush or perhaps to see more patients, or to be able to take time in the EHR to do other things. And uh, what we have found very interesting as we have looked at our data, often we find that clinicians that are spending less time in documentation and orders and addressing the alerts 
are actually spending about the same amount of time in the EHR. And what we have found is a couple things. One of them is that they will see more patients, which is fantastic because it opens up our access and helps them be able to be more efficient. But we have also found that their level of satisfaction goes up. And in getting into more details of that data and interviewing our clinicians, what has been really interesting is that it's because they are doing things that they enjoy in the system. And what they enjoy is really learning about the patients, spending time thinking through the diagnosis. They feel less like they're in the hamster wheel trying to catch up all day, and they feel like they're able to actually take care of patients and provide better quality of care. That has to have a huge impact on their overall well-being and, and burnout rates. Yeah, absolutely. And that is why we have really taken this concept of wellness informatics to heart. So we have a team that we call wellness informatics. And the reason we call them that is when you think about the Stanford model of fulfillment, there are three different aspects. One of them is personal resilience. The other one is culture of wellness. And the third one is efficiency. And so what we hear from our clinicians often is that all of those aspects are important. And we have a wonderful wellness team at Novon Health that focuses on the personal resilience and the culture of wellness. And they really have fantastic events. And what the clinicians say is when they come back to their clinic, they then still face the challenges of the everyday. And so that efficiency bucket is where wellness informatics comes in because we want to make sure we're addressing all aspects of burnout. Um, and that is something that we hear attributed to technology more often than not. So we really feel that informatics plays a critical role there. So at the end of the podcast, we like to ask everybody the same question, which is to think about two or three things that are so well designed, and they could be outside of healthcare, but so well designed that they bring you joy to interact with. I love that question. And uh, I'm going to give you two examples. And one of them is actually in healthcare. Um, but I'm going to start with the one that's outside of healthcare. Um, several years ago, funny enough, when I was taking a physician builder class, one of the gentlemen told me that his daughter designs an avocado peeler that is an all-in-one tool. And, you know, I came home, mentioned this to my husband, and he found it and purchased it. And it is brilliant. It is really, truly brilliant. It's one piece of equipment that peels, takes the pit out, slices it for you, does all the things. Now, how many times have you struggled with an avocado? Every time. That, every that's time. how many times. Every time. <laughs> and the simplicity of it, I think, is what makes it so great. But it is a pleasure to use every single time. <laughs> I want I want this thing. This was developed amazing. by an uh, uh, an Epic employees, or is this just a colleague of yours that was in the class? It was an informaticist, his daughter, and I would have never heard of it if he didn't just randomly share this tidbit with me. But yes, it gives me pleasure to use it every time, and I do not touch avocados without it anymore. We'll make sure to put a link to that product in the the show notes, so other folks who I'm sure have experienced the same struggles we have with avocado peeling will. Uh, will be able to access it as well. I love that. And I'm sure everybody will enjoy it as much as I do. 
Um, the second example I want to talk about is something that's near and dear to me as a pediatrician, and that was um, the management of hyperbilirubinemia. I've spent most of my career working in the nursery, and the way that I like to describe this process of figuring out bilirubin management is that you measure these values every few hours on all of your patients, and you have to figure out to analyze each value, how many hours old the baby is at that point. And so I have these great memories of being post-call, sleep deprived, and sitting there in my fingers trying to figure out how many hours the baby is. And then you would, on paper, write out every value and how many hours. And the best part about that is then your partner would come in and do the exact same thing. And so the level of inefficiency here for something a computer can easily do was just impressive. And of course, every nurse would do the same thing and they change shifts every eight hours, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I started in informatics, this was very early in my career, I was determined to solve this problem, <laughs> mostly because it impacted my clinical care <laughs> every day. <laughs> and the first thing that we did is we built a simple report that just calculated the number of hours. Completely easy to do and we put it in the EHR. And the next thing we did is we actually linked it to the decision support tool that, that told the clinician exactly what they need to do. And so we took something and we did some time studies that took two to three minutes each time and we made it five to 10 seconds. And um, that tool in several organizations ago, we implemented in the nursery. And we started measuring adoption. We had 100% adoption. <laughs> um, we also measured that we were saving well over 100 hours of physician time in a month. And that's assuming people only do this once, but we know it's being done five, 10 times. So I think that number is exponentially larger. And that was really an early iteration of actually taking the bilirubin curve and putting it into Epic. And I, along with many other pediatricians, worked with Epic based on what we had done at that institution, to bring that to the EHR today. So it is now existing in our EHR environment. And I can truly say I love using it every time. I will volunteer to admit those hyperbilirubin babies just so I can use the curve. That's great. And I, and I, I think you've actually underplayed how difficult it is to do without your tool, uh, because not only do you need to see the, the bilirubin results and the hours of age, but you also need to know the gestational age in order to determine what you're supposed to do with those numbers. And uh, uh, it, it's so complicated. And I've had, not only have I taken care of those kids, I had one of those kids. And uh, and you're right, that tool is, um, that. You, that, that's exactly what a computer is really good at, and why are humans trying to do it? That's a fantastic contribution to clinical practice. I, I mean, it's not as good as the avocado. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> but I mean, it's okay. I mean, it's not embarrassing. Sorry, Jerome, you were saying? Was I? <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, a very entertaining talk. We've learned a lot. Um, again, I think the key thing that everyone should take home is that if you're a pediatrician and you have a computer science background, you're a pretty cool person. But there's other things that are important too, apparently, about governance, about having clinical informaticians, um, about making sure that the details are all taken care of, and uh, I certainly appreciate learning all of that from you today. Well, thank you for having me.
Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information about Novant Health and Dr. Lozovatsky's work, head to novanthealth.org. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well. 